Welcome to Hospitality and Politics. I am your host, Andrew Ridgey, and as always, this show is powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. You have to deal with the State Liquor Authority. You have to deal with the Department of Buildings and contractors and the Health Department, and there's just so many little things that running a restaurant intersects with. And meanwhile, you know, at the end of the day, you still have your community and you still have your food. Today, my guest on the show is Serena Dye. Serena is the editor of Eater New York, which is a very, very cool job, which we're going to learn about. And I imagine it's pretty demanding and there is a lot always going on in your world. Eater is, of course, the restaurant news and dining guide site, which I have to imagine if you're listening to the show, you are familiar with. If you are not, then you definitely need to check them out. Their website is ny.eater.com. And today we're going to chat about Eater, but our main focus is going to be about the recent power issue that they released, which is made up of 10 what I call deep dive articles into how power and influence have changed the New York dining scene. When this issue was first published, I was literally walking down the street, which I shouldn't be doing, reading the articles. I got home and I was up for hours sitting on my couch reading all of the articles because I couldn't stop. And the first thing that came to mind, which I quickly tweeted out and I think posted on some other social media channels about the issue, was that there is a lot for people to like, some things people may disagree with, debate and think about. And when I looked and thought about these stories collectively, it reminded me that the restaurant industry is very much like society as a whole, because all of these issues that we deal with in the restaurant industry, we're also dealing with in society in so many different ways, which I think is very interesting and one of the reasons I love the restaurant and hospitality industry so much. So if you like the show, make sure you subscribe where you get your podcasts, leave a review, share on social media, and you can find us at the NYC Alliance on Twitter and Instagram. The New York City Hospitality Alliance is by our name on Facebook and LinkedIn, and I am on Twitter at Andrew Ridgey or on Political Foodie NYC if you're on Instagram. This podcast is supported by members of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. And if you want to learn more about our organization and support our mission, go to the nycalliance.org. And we are here with Serena Dye. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat about the power issue. I am super excited. So, you know, I, we've communicated before. I see your name all over. And this is actually the first time we're here. We're meeting. We're chatting. So very, very excited. Yeah, I don't think we've ever met in person. I know. Despite the many exchange yes. emails. First time for everything. So I gave a little intro about Eater. But I'd love in your own words, how do you describe the website and your organization's mission? So Eater is trying to be, and I think fairly successful at being the go-to publication about everything about dining out and the business and culture of it. And uh, for me in New York City, Eater has publications all across the country. Anyone who um, goes to Chicago or LA or Montreal will find our presence there. Also expanding into travel guides. So kind of a bigger thing, but um, our big thing is we have local sites. So I only deal with New York City, which I think is the best dining city in the country. But Ding, you know. ding, ding. I agree. 
<laughs> so it's very, it's very exciting. So it's a lot of news. I think uh, what set, sets us apart from other food publications is that we do focus on news. So new restaurants opening, things that are happening, um, issues. So today, for example, we covered the cashless ban, uh, and things opening, closings as well, um, and doing it as soon as possible. And um, yeah, so I think a lot of other food publications will focus more, for example, on like cooking and home recipes. That is not what we do. Our biggest focus is restaurants in yeah. particular. Well, listen, I, I like that. I imagine the audience is pretty diverse as well, because clearly just the general public, people that like restaurants, love to go out and eat and drink, they can find all of that on your site. But because it also is industry news, people in the industry are also reading. So I feel like you're able to, you know, kind of straddle and speak to both worlds, um, which is nice because a lot of publications all aren't always like that. They're kind of industry or they are meant for the general public. Yeah. I mean, we, we see our audience as food obsessives. And so ultimately that ends up being a lot of industry people. But yes. um, the great thing about food culture is that so many people who aren't in the industry are also really into it. Totally. Um, so let's talk. So you are the editor for Eater New York. Yes. What does that mean? So it means that I cover and oversee everything happening in New York City restaurants. So um, it's a lot of news, like I said. So openings and closings. We have a news team. We also are very lucky to have two restaurant critics, which I think is fairly rare these days uh, to have full-time restaurant critics. But we have Robert Sitsuma, who kind of um, does more outer borough stuff, more mom and pop stuff. Um, and then Ryan Sutton, who does more fine dining, tends to go more on the upscale side. Um, they do full reviews and just kind of like one-off things as well. Um, and so my job is kind of look at trends and look at um, what restaurants were actually interested in opening. There's no way that one person could cover every single restaurant opening in New York City. So kind of deciding what people actually need to know um, and what food obsesses are interested in and what people are talking about. One of our flagship items, for example, is the heat map. So every month we have a heat map for Queens, Manhattan, and Brooklyn. And so um, like the name suggests, these are restaurants that are hot. Like these are the places that are busy. And uh, these are the places that are honestly going to be harder to get a reservation. And if you are someone who's obsessed with restaurants and in the know and you want to know which the places are, are that, you, you come to Eater. And so that's the that's the idea. So those are the kind of restaurants that kind of make up the core of our um, our coverage is, is places that are hot. Um, meanwhile, we do cover everything in dining. So for places that are maybe a little more low key, um, those are still places that we want to cover if they if they're good and um, kind of generally trends and, um, you know, great stories in the city. There's so much to cover here. Uh, but I, yeah, I would say we're almost probably best known for the heat map and the 38, 38 being our central map of restaurants, which we say it's good for visitors, but also good for people who are local and just kind of just a snapshot of uh, how dining is right now. Sure. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm just recognizing it more, but I feel like over the past, I don't know, year or two, there's been a growing focus on restaurants outside of Manhattan or some that may not be as kind of popular or have a celebrity chef, which we're going to talk about. Yeah. That was part of the, the, the power issue. And I think that's really nice because you have a great audience and it's a nice way to be able to, you know, put people on to these great little restaurants that otherwise may not be covered. And I'm going to reveal a little secret because of my job. People always call, call me or they're coming to New York and they have a friend and they're like, you know, where do I go and eat? Tell me the place to go eat. Where do I go drink? And I, I mean, I know places because I go out, but, you know, 
I'm an advocate on behalf of the industry. I work closely with the businesses, but I'm not covering it like uh, Ryan and, you know, the other folks on, you know, your team. So your heat maps and the 38 are <laughs> often, uh, I may not just send the link, but I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, this place, this place, you know, and uh, use it that way. And I suspect I'm not the only one. Oh, my, I, I do that, too. Every time someone asks me for recommendations, I'm like, oh, let me look up one of our maps. I can't remember everything. So just kind of tracking that. So from a restaurateur, perspective, you know, if you're speaking with someone in the restaurant industry, since you've been in the role as editor um, at Eater New York, have there been one or two things that you've kind of learned that have really kind of like enlightened you or something you kind of came into the role with one opinion and perspective, but then you started getting a better understanding or kind of reshaped your thinking? Yeah, well, I came from local news. So I used to work for this website called DNA Info, now defunct, oh, but it was hyper local loved, news. Loved oh, DNA Info. Loved DNA. But it was it's so still fun. archived. I think it's a still lot archived. of the stories. Yeah, 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 it's still archived. So I worked for them. I covered Williamsburg, Greenpoint, Bushwick, and I also worked there in Chicago. So I came from a perspective of uh, covering all sorts of things. So like business and politics and crime, and also restaurants were about that because, as you know, restaurants are a flagship of every community. Sure. Uh, so there was definitely part of our coverage. Yeah, so I had I had not been on the food beat before I started at Eater. I started as a reporter uh, a while back. And, uh, you know, it's been really interesting. It's such a dynamic industry. And um, so many people part are in it because they're passionate, especially with the rights of food culture. I ended up talking to so many people. You know, you, you don't talk to people who are just feel media- meh about what yes. they're doing. Everyone's really, really into it. And I, I found that... Um, I found that really nice. You know, you always want to talk to people who are passionate about what they're doing when you're doing a story. Um, and I think it just makes it more interesting. Um, I, I What I learned, I would say the business part has been really interesting as well. Just exactly how hard it is to run a restaurant and kind of peeling the curtain back a little bit. Um, and just the little things that restaurant has to do. I, I mean, it's a small business, but it touches so many different parts of the city. You have to deal with the state liquor authority. You have to deal with, you know, the Department of Buildings and contractors and the heart de- health department. And there's just so many little things that running a restaurant intersects with. Um, and meanwhile, you know, at the end of the day, you still have your community and you still have like your food that you're trying to serve, which people think about restaurants like, oh, you're in the food business. Like, well, yeah, it's the food business. Definitely. That's kind of what it's known for. But it's so much bigger than that. And that's been really fun. Um, And one of my favorite things to cover about restaurants is all the different things that intersect with it. And uh, for me, a a lot of different stories are food stories and seeing what ways um, that it's connecting with our audience and and what other ways outside of just here's the food on the plate that our audience is going to be interested in. That's great. Yeah. No, I always say, you know, people often get into the business because they're a great cook or a hospitable host. But in today's industry, for various reasons, the regulatory pressures, the competition, uh, just the nature of the business, I always say nights, weekends, holidays, it's a real grind. You know, it's not good enough just to be a great cook or hospitable host. You have to be a real business person. And a lot of restaurateurs tell me they feel like they're sometimes more of a chief compliance officer, or now they're focusing on other aspects of the business that's taking them away from doing what they love and what they're passionate about. And like what you said, these people with personalities and they're passionate, like, I want to be on the dining room floor. 
I want to be in the kitchen. Um, and I think that that's becoming more challenging. Um, but I do think your type of reporting and other folks out there really being able to explain the complexity of running a restaurant, you know, it's difficult enough just between ordering the food and getting it on the plate and getting it out to the table. There's so many other moving parts. Um, so before we get into the power issue, which I want to talk a whole bunch about, um, is there any other recent news stories that you've uh, published, you know, either you personally or someone on your team that you think were great interest to the restaurant industry? As, as far as the bigger story, um, you know, one of my favorite stories that I actually thought about holding for the power package, but just wanted to run it was uh, Diana Hubble, one of our freelancers. She did this whole report about TripAdvisor mm. uh, last month, I think. Seems like so long yes. ago, but it was fairly recent. Um, and uh, she was so we kind of had this question of, you know, there's Yelp, there's Instagram. These are things that are pretty commonly talked about as far as impacting the restaurant scene in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had this friend say, yeah, I went to this restaurant. And I, uh, the, the restaurateur was just like, love TripAdvisor. It's the only platform I care about. It drives so much business to me. And it had never occurred to me that uh, people would care so much about mm. TripAdvisor. I tend to do use it when I'm traveling. You know, I, it doesn't seem to be a mover and shaker as far as keeping restaurants alive in New York. Um, and then I would look at the top 10 restaurants on TripAdvisor. These are not really restaurants that we're covering or that are part of the conversation as far as I, I know. Um, but so I had I Diana went and looked and said, why is it like that? Like, who are these restaurants? Why are these impacting them? And she found something really interesting. Was like, yeah, these re- these re- these TripAdvisor reviews are driving a ton of traffic to these restaurants. Um, it is a lot of visitors. It's a little. It's a lot of Europeans. TripAdvisor is uh, predominantly used in Europe, so that kind of explains part of that. Uh, but then there were also some fishy things, like with any different platform, there uh, there are fake reviews, and fake reviews are fairly rampant. And there are some restaurants, not all, but some restaurants in the top 10 that like are finding ways to work around the system. And so the idea of being, quote unquote, the best restaurant in New York City on TripAdvisor is a very complicated moniker um, because you basically have to ask every customer to leave you a positive TripAdvisor review. You have to bend over backwards if they even say one single negative thing. You basically have to build your restaurant catering to the platform. Um, And you know, it works. They're staying open. They're fine. But it is this kind of weird, complicated question of what is the cost of that? That was a great story. Another one that I, you know, read in depth, I think once <laughs> or twice. Um, but yes, that goes back to my point too about not just being a great cook or a hospitable host is that there's all these outside pressures and we see all the controversy surrounding Grubhub and the, you know, bogus fees they were charging and the algorithms and, you know, reservation platforms, now ghost kitchens and, you know, technology obviously is changing the world. Clearly, restaurants are part of the world, so it's changing the industry as well. And how people are using technology for their business uh, to benefit their business, how it potentially hurts their business, but then also how you can kind of potentially manipulate results, how others can manipulate results on your behalf that either benefit or hurt you, Um, and then others that may not be as tech savvy and are just kind of like floating through the world, but somehow, unbeknownst to them, technology and reviews and all of this stuff is impacting their business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the tech thing is crazy. I think one of my, I mean, pet peeves is the wrong word, but- I think that it's so important right now for restaurants to be looking at tech. I'm sure it's such a growing industry to do restaurant tech. There's such a demand for it. That said, one of my 
one of my end of the things that annoys me is when people who have no experience in restaurants but have tons of experience in tech kind of helicopter in yes. and be like, oh, I got it. This is going to change everything. I know how to do it. And I'm like, you realize people's, the food is, you can't digitize food. You still, there's still all these processes that are very, um, you know, you have to be touched with your hands and you can't, you can't just have like a Tinder, yeah. you know, you can't just have bills an app that doesn't relate back to food. So that, that is one, one like a uh, problem with it is, yeah, tech industry is growing in the restaurants, but also you end up having tech people coming in and getting tons of money. And I'm yeah. like, I wish that money just went to, went to some freaking restaurants. Yes. So th- that's a huge issue. So through the Hospitality Alliance, we have some partners every year. We do a technology conference, exactly this. How is technology shaping and influencing the hospitality industry, the restaurant industry, the nightlife industry? And the conversations are fascinating. And one of the things that has come up year after year is that you have so many of these really brilliant coders and engineers that you know are building out these elegant platforms and then they try to sell them to the restaurants and the restaurant tour is like, did you ever speak with <laughs> a person who's going to actually use this? Um, and they're yeah. like, no. And now they've gotten better and a lot of these companies um, are creating board of directors that have restaurant tours represented on them. They're helping them guide through these complexities. But so many of the operations are intertwined. So you could be using one tech platform, but it doesn't integrate and sync properly with another tech platform. And it's it, it's really fascinating. And look, tech historically really is the only industry that hasn't been regulated really at all for the most part in, in the United States mm-hmm. at least. Um, clearly, the restaurant industry is very, very regulated. I'd say it's highly right. overregulated. But now the city council held some oversight hearings into delivery platforms. They're going to be hosting one on ghost kitchens. And a lot of these conversations, not just in the restaurant industry, but and they really stem from like the Facebooks and oh, Twitter yeah. and everything yeah. is elevating this conversation. Whether or not they'll be regulated, how they will uh, is a whole different story, but we're definitely on the path. So talking about being on the path, we're going to transition at the fork in the road to the power issue. So the power issue, I saw it was how power and influence have changed in New York dining. So This may be a little annoying for readers, but I'm going to read off the 10 stories quickly (laughs) that make up this issue because we're not going to be able to speak about each story, but I want to try to cover several of them. So one, rich diners only. Private restaurants are on the rise in New York. Two, the complicated power of Lafreda, the biggest name in NYC's meat industry. Three, can paying 50K for PR still make a restaurant famous? Four, how to raise money for a restaurant when no one knows your name. Five, meet the underground power brokers of NYC Dining, restaurant consultants. Six, NYC's established power players on what's next in NYC Dining. Seven, how diners pressured NYC's restaurateurs to be more ethical. Interesting one. Eight, the power of the reality TV chef is over at NYC. Nine, six reasons sushi Omakase became the ultimate dining flex of New York's wealthy. And 10, why don't you read it so people don't just get yes. bored of my voice? The new guard of New York dining is a story to meet them. Beautiful. So let's first start off with the process. When you sat down with your team, how did you determine what the 10 articles were going to be about? 
So this is how it, it all started. Uh, I, you heard the news about the French Tech guys getting yes. signed at Rockefeller Center. So before we heard that tip, we'd been hearing rumors. And one of the tips we heard was someone basically saying, you know, the Rockefeller Center called everyone who was anyone to try and get into that space. And I had this question uh, to myself that who is everyone that's anyone now? Things have changed so much. I mean, um, in part because of me too. I mean, that's kind of a space that maybe Mario would have gone in now and his name is no longer as illustrious as it once was. Um, but for a way to put it. <laughs> one way, a kinder way to put it, yeah. I suppose. Uh, yeah, but things have things are always changing so quickly and who was considered big and dynamic even five years ago, it's, it's changed now. So I, I was, it started off with kind of thinking about the new guard. And we were thinking, well, we can kind of say who we think is it right now, who we think are not necessarily the empire builder, huge empire builds. Most of the people in there, we decided they had to have either at least two restaurants or were on um, a path to expanding more, like maybe had announced expansions or signed leases somewhere. Um, so that that was what we, we had kind of our monikers. And these are places that are busy. These are places that are like, quote unquote, hip, they're heat map restaurants. Um, and so it kind of started with that, but then uh, we were thinking we sh- it sh- it's about power. Like, who has power now? Uh, things have shifted so much, and what is power in the restaurant industry? And how has it changed over the last five years? I mean, we've had this huge rush of celebrity chefs and food culture going up, and it's I, I think it's kind of moving away from that, and we really wanted to explore that. Um, I mean, pa- every great story is about power, in my opinion. So there, we could have written about so many things. Um, but a few of these stories we had actually been thinking about doing for a while. And uh, a lot of times when I do big packages like this, it is a few of the stories. I've been thinking, oh, you know, I'd really love to do that, but not having the time or maybe like, oh, this isn't the right time. And so this was kind of perfect. So for example, the consultant story, I've been thinking about that for a long time. You know, there are a lot of people who are movers and shakers within the industry who don't show up in opening stories, are not going to be mentioned in like the New York Times review or the opening story on Eater even. Um, And you know what? They don't really need to be. uh, But that said, that doesn't mean they have any less influence over who's getting into what spaces. as I'm sure you saw, Hudson Yards got a lot of criticism for its lack of diversity um, from not just Eater, but from uh, many different publications, and uh, and a lot of New Yorkers were upset about it. And Stephen Ross took a and and um, took a huge hit on that, right? Like he was kind of the person to blame. Like him and Ken Himmel were both the people to blame there. Um, but you know, there were. It's not like they were making those decisions on their own. So that's part of it is looking at what else is shaping this, who else is helping making these decisions. Um, so that's a story we'd thought about for a long time, and it kind of really fit into the power issue. Yeah, I'd say the consultant one was very interesting, I think, especially reading it from like a restaurant industry perspective. Um, was that Erica Adams? Yeah, She's yeah. fantastic. I've known her when she was uh, writing other you know, places as well, oh, so I was so glad great. when uh, I, saw, I saw her name pop up there. And even the people you selected, you know, I know Andrew Moger from BCD. He's great. I know he works with tons of restaurateurs. And, you know, some of the things that are spoken about or written about in in that article, just the complexity, which you mentioned dealing with the Department of Buildings. So people on his team, we speak frequently, trying to let businesses know and do hopefully the right things early on because they can cost money up front. But if you try to 
cut corners here and there, they're going to cost you a lot more money in the end yeah. and a lot more headaches. And frankly, they could even just sabotage and tank a business. So I think there is that benefit when you're working with people like Andrew Moger and BCD. And then, of course, you know, Stephen Kamali was, or Kamali, if you'd say uh, in a Persian accent. We have a special connection, I think, because my wife is Persian. And if you know anything, which I'm sure you do about the uh, Persian culture, food is love, food is everything, mm-hmm. um, which is a whole other topic, which I won't go too often off uh, topic, but I know uh, Taste of Persia, which was the incredible little Persian restaurant inside the pizzeria, oh, yeah. uh, you know, over by like the Flatiron neighborhood, yeah, yeah. Uh, isn't going to be there. I think he actually closed. That was disappointing. Yeah. But He's got to, someone's got to find him a new space. Seriously, seriously. Maybe uh, Stephen can do it. <laughs> Maybe Stephen can do it. And he yeah. can yeah, get into a place. But yeah, so that, that was a d- very um, interesting angle. And I think for just the general readers, too, that don't always know, like, you know, who are these people? Because so often, especially the way of the world now, you know, food and beverage, it's nothing new, but it's really like the anchor and cornerstone of so many new developments, you know, whether it's hotels or office space or new residential towers or some someone's just trying to re-envision how should this block or this neighborhood look. You have restaurant tours that are known, but you know, to go into a specific space, sometimes you need to be an expert. You need to have that thing, whatever it is. And when you turn to people like a Stephen Kamali or an Andrew Moger or others, these developers can really rely on them because they know the complexities of the industry. They know who the players are. And hopefully, Clearly not in every case, but hopefully in a lot of them, they're able to make a nice match where the person going in that's going to be operating the restaurant fits into the neighborhood, the the building. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, especially with retail being quite difficult with we're talking about tech with a rise of online shopping. Mm-hmm. The one thing you can't really just sell online in the same way is food. Yes. And so that's people still want to go out and still want to have experiences. Yeah. And that's what it is. Everything, you know, not to kind of bang the drum on everything, you know, an experience. But, you know, I think like the restaurant's the original experience because you're going in there and they're not doing, you know, anything, you know, setting up some sort of museum. It's just the the restaurant and they're creating that overall experience, which kind of leads from the consultant piece into uh, how to raise money for a restaurant when no one knows your name. Yeah. You know, that piece came about because I think that money is probably the most obvious thing when you're thinking about power. Money is power. If you don't have money, less likely to have power. Uh as I'm sure you're aware, there are very few restaurants that are publicly trading, especially in New York City. Most of them are private businesses. And so finding out who kind of the biggest investors are that are investing in places in New York City is quite difficult. Most of them are anonymous. Most of them are silent. Most of them don't want to talk to either, which is fine. But we knew we wanted to touch upon the element um, about investment and how important money was to the way that the restaurant industry functions in New York. And so the way we kind of went about it was Stephanie Tudor. She uh, talked to a bunch of people about how to raise it when you feel like you don't have any of those connections, where you do kind of feel like you're on the outside. Um, and we heard a lot of interesting things that uh, people really made it work and made it successful. Uh, really interesting was Yamasan, who, mm-hmm. which is like hot right now. It's so hard to get a table there, but they 
raised their money entirely from Peruvian investors, which is so wild. Well, because um, you know a lot of them were saying that unless you uh, are doing burgers or Italian, like something that has already been pretty um, embedded into American food culture, it can be very difficult. No one really knows who Nikkei Cuisine is. Like that's like that was not in not in the New York. It's still so new. Like that's mm-hmm. what makes them such trailblazers. But because of that, it's people are spending tons of money. They don't, they're not really will, as willing to bet on something that they've never heard of. Um, but he found a way, you know, he went to Peru where people were pumped. We we're like, yeah, we love this. There's no presence. Let's do it. It's been a huge success for them. I hope it continues to be. Well, it's, I, I, it's hard, hard to get a table. People are like awesome. booking out a month out, but, um, yeah, yeah. So it was very interesting to talk to them about how they, they made it work. Yeah. I think I've, e- I'm trying to think really quickly and count. I think I've emailed or texted this article to like six different people because we had some <laughs> conversation about money. And that's something that always comes up. Um, you know, my, I come from a bakery family and my grandfather would always say, you know, rich or poor, it's good to have money. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's very true, especially in the agree. restaurant and the food service industry. You know, it's a pennies business, you know, with the exception of a handful of restaurant companies. And even those companies over the past, you know, decade, I think they've, most of them have really seen their, their, their margins, uh, continue to shrink for various different reasons. But, um, you know, when banks aren't lending, um, if you want to get some sort of more kind of institutional funding or private equity or VC, you know, they're looking for very specific things. You know, do you have four to eight locations? What's your business plan? You know, looking at all of your financials, what's the culture of the business? And frankly, a lot of people, at least historically, and it's changing, got into the restaurant industry because it was the family business or they didn't have any other options or they thought they could be a good cook or like I said, I hospitable host or they right. just wanted they to open a, a restaurant. Party. Yeah. You know, now you're getting a lot more, you know, people coming out of business school that or coming from other industries that have a very sophisticated approach to the way they're operating a restaurant. In the grand scheme of things, I think that's pretty new. But there's still so many, as you mentioned and was highlighted in this article, um, a lot of people that may have great concepts. They're super hardworking. They they got, you know, great food, great service. Ambitious. Ambitious. They just don't have the same access, the same connections, um, and it puts them at a real disadvantage. So even some of the tips um, that were there, I, I jotted a few down, you know, like first you go to friends and family, you know, which everyone says over the past however many years people have done, you know, online fundraising campaigns. But like your dentist, your doctor, accountant, and then I think the line was people who are around money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, it just stuck out to me because you know what? There's a lot of people, especially in a place like New York City, and people love restaurants and people are willing to invest. They want a point or two here. They want to know they can get that coveted reservation. And- yeah, yeah. Just make the call. And some of these people were saying it doesn't have to be a lot. You know, yep. it's not like you need someone to put down 20,000 bucks and like, you know, half of their 401k. Sometimes some people got like 5,000 bucks from yeah. one person. And that is maybe a little bit more reasonable and a little bit easier to to wrap their minds around. Yeah. But I, I think that's, that's really helpful. I would love to see, you know, just a wink, wink, but to everyone, um, kind of more reporting on that, because I think that really 
is a hurdle um, to people. And I think there's so many people, clearly because of the success of Eater, there's so many people that love eating out. They love restaurants. And perhaps they are even in a position to kind of get involved or get behind a restaurant. Um, and they just have no idea how to. They're like, well, I can't even get a reservation there. Yeah. Like, how would I even find out about investing $25,000? Yeah, um, but yeah. there's a lot of people in New York and there's people with money. And it can be exciting. Listen, it's not um, going back. I mentioned my grandfather is another joke. And I always kind of say it. Uh, who knows where it originally came from? But it's, you know, how do you make a small fortune in the restaurant industry? You start with a large fortune. <laughs> and it's, again, it, it rings so true. So a lot of people may want to support local businesses and be involved in a restaurant. And of course, people want a return. But I think people, especially when they don't have multiple locations or their growth plan for their restaurant is, we'd love to have two or three neighborhood restaurants. We're not looking to have 50 restaurants, mm-hmm. you know, so they may not attract the same attention. So it's figuring out who to talk to, where to find right. them, and how to even open up that dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, our Dan Janine, who was a co-host of uh, Eater's podcast, mm-hmm. um, he at one point mentioned looking at it as a as art. So yes. instead of instead of expecting this huge return because the reality is you're not going to get you're not going to get rich off of investing 5000 bucks in a restaurant, uh, but looking at it as a contribution to the community and looking at it as um, the way that people are museum members or perhaps um, you know investing I love that. in that's yeah, a great, investing a that's piece a great of work. analogy or whatever it is, just uh, a, a great way to position it. Yeah, I think it's I think it could be very interesting especially for a lot of the people in our new guard who enjoy being community restaurants. Yeah. They're like you said, they want to open two or three, maybe in a few more, but none of these people are necessarily looking to become the next, like, I don't know, Sweet Green or Shake yeah. Shack. And people are always talking about how do we help preserve the culture of our neighborhoods, preserve small businesses, you know, the stuff that's really unique, that's not a chain or that's not being recreated, um, you know, over and over again. And this is a way. Look at, you know, entrepreneurs in your community that are doing something interesting. Um, and two more things on this because then we got a lot of other stories to go to. One, I'd say also, which the article touched on, and I always recommend restaurateurs and people that are investing, you have to understand what the terms are and what the roles are of people. Because just taking money, which one of the people in that article said, you know, they're very specific who they are taking money from because that can completely change the dynamic of the business. So, you know, that's one hurdle is getting to the people uh, who have the money, convincing them to invest, but then also understanding the role because the industry is so complex. And, you know, if you don't have a lot of deep experience, but you just want to throw some money at something, the chances are a lot of your recommendations may not be the best uh, <laughs> business yeah. Moves. Well, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this. A lot of restaurants close because then partners yes. are at each other's throats. If yeah. you have if you have the wrong partner, you're you're done from the beginning. It's really yes. tough. You got to get along. You got to you don't want to make bad decisions because your biggest investor doesn't like yeah. this one thing you're really passionate about on the menu. You got to make that clear and make sure you're on the same page. So one other thing on this topic, and then we'll move to another article. Um, it's more of just like an FYI, a conversation I recently had, which was fascinating. Uh, Trinez Woods Black, who's the granddaughter of Sylvia Woods, uh, and I believe the VP of communication for the iconic Sylvia's restaurant uh, in Harlem. We were talking about this article and other 
issues, who's getting money, who's opening up new places. And she said what she would love to see is more black-owned restaurant groups. Mm. And we started thinking about it, and there really are not many. And it's unfortunate. There's more and more great black-owned restaurants, maybe one, two locations. But if you start thinking about who owns and operates all of the major groups, um, you don't see many. And I, I think trying to figure out what what the hurdles are there, like why not? Is it access to capital? What are the other hurdles? I think would be something really interesting for someone to um, investigate. And I know she's incredibly, incredibly um, just sharp on the uh, on this. I mean, I was just listening. I was like, wow, like, you know, I didn't think about that. And, uh, you know, that's a good point. Um, and one of the things we do with the Hospitality Alliance is try to figure out how can we help people in the industry open up businesses, operate, succeed, stay in compliant, find access to capital. So it's a conversation that we are certainly going to be kind of covering um, on different fronts. Uh, and it would be excellent to hear more yeah. I mean, when we were that. even setting up our new guard, like I said, we only did places that were fairly new and also places that had owners that had at least one or maybe plans to open a second one. It was announced and it was very difficult. You're right. There's not a lot of huge restaurant groups that are black owned. And I think for a lot of the reason, like it's harder, to, it's much harder to find capital. JJ talks about it in yes. that piece. Um, also, there's just generally a, a fewer resources for stuff like press and stuff like mm-hmm. um of like money and press are probably the biggest things and and just generally uh facing institutions that maybe aren't as friendly um just a, a variety of different reasons but I, I think it's true i think things should be friendlier to yeah to, i would love to see more of that i mean there are so many promising restaurants too you have taranga who was actually we opening more now so mm-hmm. um they are expanding which i think is really exciting and i think jj Field trip is great, and I think that he is probably going to expand. Um, I mean, I've heard a lot of great things about Berber as well. The, these really, um, the, these like restaurants that kind of have a focus on Black food, yeah. and uh, I would love to see those continue to grow as well. Yeah, no. Uh, the president of the hospitality lies Melba Wilson, who owns Melba's up in Harlem, was a dear friend. She's opening up another place. She's brought in a female uh, executive chef. They're working together. So you know, there's definitely a lot of exciting stuff happening. But again, it's like these articles that bring attention to the different topics, and I think it's very helpful. So transitioning, you know what? Let me ask you a question. Do you look at the data of who's reading? All of your articles, I presume. <laughs> I try, yeah. So yeah. in this, so I mean, I know what I found interesting, and I suspect I have a good, you know, pulse on what other people in the restaurant industry are, are reading. But what were the most read articles out of this whole entire this ten parts? Yeah, series. Well, by uh, by far the most popular article was this piece on exclusive diners and the rise in exclusive restaurants. I just did an interview uh, with another news outlet the other day about these private restaurants. So tell me, can you just talk a little bit yeah, about that story? Yeah, so Beth Landman, a longtime reporter for Eater, uh, wrote the story about the rise in exclusive restaurants. So these are restaurants that uh, have a really hefty membership fee in order to join or the restaurants in really pricey condo buildings these luxury developments that only people who live in that development are allowed to go into. Um, there's plans for like John George is doing one. Sean Herga, I think, is the is the chef at another one. Um, so with really, you know, fine dining chefs managing this menus and it's 
only available to these places where a penthouse is like $238 million. Um, and then also places that, uh, you know, they're curating the guest list a little bit. Like not everyone can make a reservation. Or if you do, maybe the host is looking into who you are. And so there's a, there's far more about the of these restaurants. Um, another one opened like last month, which is kind of crazy. After she'd already filed and edited, I was like, God, I guess got to add <laughs> this into here. Um, and it's for a few different reasons and a few different kinds of private restaurants, right? So there are the membership ones where uh, people have to pay a huge upfront fee and then a yearly fee. So it's not new necessarily. So Soho House has been for around for a while. London has a bunch of membership clubs, but it does seem like there are more in the last few years. Um, and then the other reason is that uh, there is a huge glut of luxury condos in New York City. And so a lot of these multi-million dollar places that shot up over the last decade are uh, some of these places are just sitting empty. And so developers are looking, what are ways that we can attract more people? And a huge new amenity is having a restaurant in the building. So maybe you can bring in your friends and eat at this restaurant that only you only is available to you and people who live in the building. Um, so just anything to kind of to help that out. Yeah. No, it's an interesting concept. And I wonder the longevity. Like clearly, if it's somehow being subsidized because it's an amenity to the building, uh, you know, it could have some longevity. You talk about Soho House, which is an interesting concept because they have the pool, they have the rooms. It's more than just a private you know, restaurant. Right. Um, but I think some of the people, Steve Cuso, who writes for the New York Post, seem pretty skeptical. Yeah. I know he's skeptical <laughs> about a lot of things. Right, right. Um, but he was certainly one. And then I was happy to see uh, Steve Zagar, who teaches at NYU and yeah. used to um, run the management program at the Institute of Culinary Education, who was actually my teacher. I graduated wow. back in like 2004 there and I always love seeing Steve. That's He's so fun. A character, and I mean, he knows this stuff, you know, in, inside out. So I know whenever I see his name and comments, he's always like, he's witty. He's funny and great quotes. It's like, oh, why did I come up with that? <laughs> Loved it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what was really interesting to me that this was the most for story. I think because I had a little bit of like an eat the rich angle yes. from on social media. Um, but what was interesting about it was a lot of one reason that people said that it's growing is that people are looking for a sense of community. And there are there's so much good food in New York now. Yeah. I, I think there's it's so competitive, not only good food, but good environments, yes. good drinks. It's it's I, I mean, the it's hard to have a bad mm -hmm. meal in New York. Like you can have a mediocre meal yeah. pretty easily, but it's hard to have a really bad one. And uh, because that is kind of so competitive and so level that restaurants can't just be restaurants anymore. They need to make people feel like they belong. There's a reason to be there. And, um, you know, for the ultra wealthy, that might be paying to be only around ultra wealthy people. Uh, a big element of our new guard was all most of these people, um, or a lot of them really, really care about community and are thinking about our like, what are like, charity events we would do? Like, do we have happy hours? Do we have one night where it's just walk ins? Do we like, what are things that we're actually adding and trying to be thoughtful about um, what's around them yeah. and how they can contribute or um, they're mission driven, right? So like you have the Ata guys, they're so yes. great. And they they're, they have a mission for, for years, they want to change the way that New Yorkers see Indian food. And uh, that it, they're not just running a restaurant, they have this extra passion behind mm -hmm. it and extra, um, extra mission behind it. And I think a lot of diners now are 
are are seeking that. And so it's so funny that there was this weird, this like very funny eat the rich angle that it's popular on social media, but kind of the core behind it, uh, you see it across all price points yeah. where people want to go somewhere where they feel like they're not just going out and eating. Yeah. They are um, part of something bigger than themselves. Yeah, which again, going back, restaurants, nightlife. And I think that's what we're able to provide people. It's that kind of that escape and that experience we were talking about before. So it'll be fascinating to see how this private dining uh, movement evolves. You know, I suspect there'll always be a couple people that'll be able to make it, but will it eventually sooner than later kind of just go out of fashion? Because as we know, dining chains, uh, dining trends are always changing. So uh, the PR story, can paying 50K for PR <laughs> still make a restaurant famous? So my first question before we talk about that yes. was, did you get a lot of like hate mail from PR people <laughs> or did they reach out to you and comment? Um, oh, what? they wouldn't They wouldn't dare. Ah. <laughs> no, well, a lot of people wouldn't talk to Aaron for the story. Um, I can yeah, imagine They really didn't want to say one. much. Yeah, yeah. And I, I kind of anticipated that. So I was open to be like, okay, you don't want to put your PA, PR face on? Like, let's go anonymous. Like, say, be open. Um, and people were still quite nervous to talk about it, uh, which was a shame. But I think it was an interesting piece because a lot of the biggest names are people with Michelin stars don't necessarily have PR. And there is this among a certain uh, among ambitious, ambitious restaurants who are aiming for awards and aiming for press coverage. Um, it's kind of a given that you have to have PR. Yes. And there are people who aren't doing it. That said, you know, that you it's it's you're paying for something, right? Like you run a restaurant, you don't necessarily know the language or the lingo or have the right contacts and it may just may seem very opaque to you and understandably so. Um I think it's much easier than it was in the past to get press without having a publicist. Um but that doesn't mean a publicist is not worth their cash. What I thought was interesting was a lot of the comments throughout the article was kind of like poo-pooing on the concept, but then the article kind of ends basically with a quote um, saying that, and I guess that's why you still hire a publicist. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, oh. yeah. Well, I mean, the biggest, most awards, you can't really game it. Like having a publicist isn't going to, send sending a bunch of journalists uh, free food isn't really going to cut it to get a Michelin star. But for the World's 50, open secret, if you have the right PR campaign, you will get higher on the list. There you go. Maybe it's a little like FOMO. It's like the fear of missing out. If you don't have a publicist, what are you not going to get? But what was also yeah. interesting, and I think restaurants tours and I've had this conversation with them as well. You know, the whole world is changing and evolving in people's roles. And I think one of the people that were quoted in the article said, you know, people are now, your PR firm is more than just, you know, a traditional publicist. They're consulting with you on all of these different issues. And that kind of goes back to the consultants where, you know, you may bring them in for something very specific. You know, it may be about a department of buildings issue and Con Edison so you can get your gas turned on. But they then point something out about where your hand sink is located. And they're like, you know, if you don't have that within X feet of a food prep area, that's going to be an issue with the health department. So you have these people that are really deep in the industry. And a lot of these PR people in the food service restaurant industry in New York, you know, they just have such a wealth of knowledge and experience. So while you may be hiring them to get 
your name in a story somewhere or try to, you know, build up your profile to get an award, what they're often doing is they're giving these little kind of nuggets of wisdom and guidance and consultation along the way of what you can do to run a successful business. And we won't get into one of the other stories, which is about, you know, the ethical restaurants and diners putting pressure on restaurants to be more ethical. But because of all the different issues going on, whether it's Me Too or various other issues, public relations and how you handle these issues, because restaurants are public businesses, um, becomes really important. And you need someone to help kind of guide you through it because you may be a great cook or a great restaurateur, but you may not know how to manage the publicity and and deal with all of these issues. And another time, I'd love to talk about the uh, ethics uh, article because it's interesting, you know, whether we talk about sustainability, equity, LGBTQ, cultural appropriation, workplace issues, Me Too, how your food is sourced, you know, all of these things, I think, are kind of influence the industry from the diner, but it's also like from the chef and restaurant tour up, you know, like the early on chefs who were sourcing local farmers, sustainable fisheries and doing all of this. And I think because people love restaurants, again, clearly they read Eater and these other publications that, you know, their dining habits um, are influencing what restaurants are doing, but then the business practices of other restaurants are influencing other restaurants and it's this right. kind of people are pushing each other yes. yeah yeah it's definitely there's a fair amount of education involved and the restaurant ha- does kind of have to um you know there are a lot of things that like i think the example in there of pickling scraps for drinks or putting it repurposing it that's also maybe just a good business practice to reduce waste and uh, i loved that bit about um yeah maybe this was something the restaurant was always doing but the it's now more at the forefront because the diner does care but you know it does in some ways does start with the restaurant as well there has to be that conversation of where how far can the diner be pushed and also uh, what does the diner need and kind of influence the diner learns from you and maybe they're going to a different restaurant and asking for a similar thing. Well, I think one of the greatest things, and there's a lot happening in the industry, but the whole kind of non-alcoholic cocktail, I don't really drink. And um, <laughs> now actually when I go on to eat or I don't know if I was Googling separately, but Seedlip. Yeah, um, yeah. They're it keeps blowing coming up. up. Like, yeah. And it's just great. And that's one thing I've been looking on menus and I just urge more and more restaurants to do that. It's just so many great it's great on so many levels. Financially for the business, it also just provides more options. It's like, I don't need another seltzer or another. I mean, I love seltzer, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Or another, you know, Diet Coke. This kind of allows people to just kind of have more you know, complex drink yeah. than just the regular, you know, soda or water. And it's more accommodating. It's hospitality. You know, when yeah. people go into restaurants, they want to connect to that restaurant and they want to feel like they're being hospitable. And I think, you know, whether people don't drink because they just don't like alcohol or they're pregnant or, you know, they've abused alcohol in the past, whatever it is, um, it's a very accommodating and smart business move. So Yeah, I love a complex non-alcoholic drink. I love that more people are doing it and, and it's spreading. Have you have you done existing conditions? The no the that's, bar I, I know. I've they read about ma- it in the eater. I have their to go. non-alcoholic drinks might be better than the boozy ones. It's really? Really they're really, really good, very complex and yeah, I wish they served those in restaurants. It it, it, it is on my list. Um so I have to get there. So we're starting to run out of time. Was there like one other story that you think kind of popped for you? You know, uh, 
What you know? What else was very popular was the was Robert Sisema's article about um, the death of the power of reality TV shafts. Yes, and I think it it is quite particular to New York. I could see um, you know someone doing very well in another city, but New York is so competitive, and I think New Yorkers are fairly dismissive of people who have just like been on one episode of Chopped. Yes. Like it's not really something you can put on your menu anymore as mm-hmm. a huge advertising gimmick um yeah i think i think there was just too many there and i I think robert's right there was a glut and uh everyone said they had some sort of tv credential and everyone wants to make it here you know this is you can make it here you can make it anywhere exactly there's a quote in there uh in that article was the power of the reality tv chef is over in nyc and it said many food enthusiasts are more interested in recreating viral recipes than they are visiting restaurants as in the days of Julia Child, the home cooks may be poised to be the new celebrity chefs. Oh, and yeah. then what went on, what was interesting is some of those, quote unquote, celebrity chefs that have the staying power. And they mentioned Tom Colicchio, Jose Andres, Dave Chang, and, uh, you know, uh, Anthony Bourdain, um, how they've all kept their relevance. Some of them, obviously, Tom, uh, you know, being on a reality TV show, some of the others weren't, but they are on TV or they have become celebrities in their own right. And it was referenced, and I'd love your thoughts on it, was that those, I think, four chefs uh, that I just referenced and, uh, you know, personalities, you know, they took on more of a cultural and political significance than most of the celebrity chefs that just came out of a talk show yeah or a tv show yeah i agree i think they all had uh decided to i don't know it's gonna sound gross to say brand building but i i don't think it's gross i think i think they made uh made a point to voice more about what they cared about instead of I only care about food. And that, again, speaks to the big theme of the power issue in general is that people want more than just food. They want a whole experience and they want to feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. And that is part of why, um, like, Jose Andres and and David Chang have – maintain more relevance and also you know the restaurants still have to be good particularly in new york oh yeah if you're it doesn't matter if you are the most famous person in the world kim card if kim kardashian opened a restaurant in new york city she'd probably do fine with tourists but i would not be surprised one bit if it fell flat on its face because that is just not the kind of dining city we are yeah and listen there's something that's just you know intrinsic and inherently personal about food and political as well. And I think that perhaps some of those chefs and restaurateurs and other commentators, they've really connected to people on that human level uh, and speak to the issues that they're having around the diner, ta- you know, the dinner table and the restaurant table. So, um, yeah, that, w- that was a really interesting uh, article as well. And I think it really helped kind of like round out the whole series. And like I said, we're not going to be able to get to all of them, but I definitely encourage people to read all of them if they haven't already. (laughs) Maybe even go back and read them a second time. Yes, um, please do. And share them with people. So my final question before we close out and we let you get out of here is, um, what kind of impact do you want the power issue to have on your readers and the restaurant industry as a whole. For readers, I hope it encourages people to think a little bit more about 
the the dining industry. Um, I think I think a lot of our readers already do do that, but I I think I just hope it gives people more fodder uh, to consider places that they go into, look out for signs, look and and just be more thoughtful diners. Um, yeah, and, and I just hope that people learn something from it. As far as the industry goes, I think one of the, like I mentioned when the start of the package and thinking about it is there was that tip saying anyone who's anybody is getting asked. And uh, I, I hope that that's changing. I hope the the crew of who anybody is is changing. I think that um, historically the city has been quite Eurocentric and some of the coolest food and restaurants happening right now are not serving European foods. And I think that the definition of what is hot and cool is expanding. And I hope that eventually when, um, you know, a big developer saying, who should we put in this flagship space that is going to have tons and tons of traffic, they can kind of look at our new guard for inspiration and think, hey, these are some pretty good operators and they are exciting and people are willing to travel for these restaurants. Um, and they are a crew that is far more mission driven than the crew before them. And these, this is a crew that is not as interested in celebrity, but yet know how to build the space. Um, and so my hope is that people can look to it and think, see them as options, uh, for, for flagship spaces and to, to help them grow. Where can people find you online if they want to connect? Yes, I am on Twitter at SSDAI uh, and Eater's account is EaterNY. Um, and then on Instagram, also at SSDAI. Serena Dye, she is the editor at Eater New York. And I am Andrew Ridgey, the host of Hospitality and Politics, powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. We are on Twitter and Instagram at the NYC Alliance, Facebook, LinkedIn. At New York City Hospitality Alliance. Yes, I'm Andrew Ridgey, which is at Andrew Ridgey on Twitter. Andrew Ridgey, I don't know, on LinkedIn and Facebook <laughs> and Political Foodie NYC on Instagram. It gets really complicated trying to keep all, all the of these socials. different places. Pick one, yeah. I know, seriously. So you if gotta you, be multi platform. Yeah, really. So listen, if you like the show, please, please go subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is that you get your podcast, share it on social media, review it. Email us. Let us know what you think. This show is all about hospitality, all about politics, and all about having the important conversations our industry has to have with the people that know all about it, like Serena. So once again, the New York City Hospitality Alliance is the organization representing restaurant nightlife establishments in the five boroughs of New York City. We're advocating in the halls of government, in the media. We're membership-based. You own a restaurant bar. Come join us. Be part of our community. There's tons of benefits. Go to thenycalliance.org or email or find us on one of those many different social media platforms. Thank you always for listening, Serena. Thank you for coming on. Raul, Andres, our amazing producers, you are the best. We will speak with you next time.